from listening to the uh, conversations that have been taking place over the last few weeks and glancing at newspapers and um, and also when travelling I couldn't help but be aware of all the um, concern with winning and losing that has been around recently and just today I heard that Michael Schumacher won the, the Grand Prix and that means England or Britain lost and we all know that Tim Hinman lost a few days ago and before that it was football and then before that it was the Queen Mother so anyway for the last few months there's been a lot of winning and losing and from the perspective of Dhamma practice this is all good stuff to engage it to to know it for what it is. Um, from the perspective of, of what in Buddhism is called the uh, uh, worldly view, um, it's very stressful. And I've um, heard quite a few people talking about uh, they just can't take it anymore, can't, whether it's watching football or tennis or the royal family the, uh, the stress of it all is just too much so the Buddha talked about these um, what do you call it? worldly dhammas or the worldly winds the eight worldly winds that we're all blown around by and encouraged us to hold these up to cultivate these as objects of, of contemplation to not to just be blown around by them but to to ponder on them to really uh, look at how it is that we are affected by these things and I find it quite helpful to hear them referred to as the worldly winds of of uh, success and failure, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, honour and insignificance. These, these worldly dhammas, or they come and go and they affect all of us, just the same as the winds of the world blow and affect us. And here on Harnham Hill, certainly it, uh, one knows what it's like to be blown around by the winds. And, and there was a while when I... Um, when I first came here and we had a we were given a little Bodhi tree and um, this Bodhi tree uh, was kept indoors of course the, the winters of, of Northumberland don't agree with Bodhi trees and this little Bodhi tree in a pot plant was, was kept in the reception room and, and I developed a practice every morning of, of going in and uh, seeing the Bodhi tree there and giving a little shake because um, I, um, having, it wasn't long before that in Chittis when we had the big hurricane and, 
and the winds came and blew all the trees down, the trees that didn't have good deep roots, that is. And, and so one was made aware that, that actually being blown around by the winds is good for trees. And, and so I thought, well, our little Bodhi tree, being inside all the time, it's not getting blown around, so its roots are not going to go deep. And so I'll have to give it a little shake. And so every morning I would go and give the Bodhi tree a little shake with the understanding that its roots were going to go deeper. And so when it came time for our Bodhi tree to get planted outside and have to face the, the rigors of the worldly winds, uh, or the winds of Harnham Hill, it wouldn't get blown over. Now, of course, behind that was, uh, for me, was the, the contemplation of of whether or not we have got sufficiently deep roots so that when we get blown by the worldly winds, are we blown over by them or not? I found it helpful to actually, in the morning, to as I shook this little Bodhi tree, to to stop and reflect, well, when I get blown by the worldly winds of, of gain and loss, or, or praise and blame, pleasure and pain, honour and insignificance, when I get blown by these can I remember this as a way of, of deepening my roots, deepening my commitment to the way, deepening my commitment to the path of awareness, or am I going to get blown over by them and just complain about the winds? So this is the, the contemplation, is to, to learn how to encourage ourselves to be aware when we get blown by these winds instead of becoming our reactions. How to learn this. If we don't have any perspective on it, well, then in Buddhist language we are caught up in the world. That when, when England beats Argentina, it's rah, rah, rah. You know, we're going through to the end. You know, we'll be there at the finish. And then when England loses against whoever it was, um, Brazil, was it? Loses against Brazil, then it's, it's boo-hoo. We're, we're no good, we never win, we're always, what is it, we're, we're noble losers. There's a, a turn to a philosophy of why England never wins anything. But then there's, you know, there's the royal family, you know, the loss of the Queen Mother and there's the, uh, the grieving and the the loss of that, and then there's the 50th anniversary of the Queen's coronation, and it's land of hope and glory, a million people, and, and it's rah, rah, rah again. And if we don't have any perspective on this at all, it's just we're going from one rah, rah, rah to another boo-hoo. And having just lost to Michael Schumacher today, some of us are boo-hoo and some of us are rah, rah. <laughs> That's the way of the world. Now, where's the freedom in that? Uh, some people don't even suspect there's any freedom and uh, will just go from from trying to win and if you win then feeling happy and becoming happy and feeling good about that but then it's only a matter of time before there's a losing and feel sad and become that the possibility that's given to us in this path of practice is not becoming our reactions, but being aware. And this path of awareness is not a path of avoidance of the world, 
This is not a path of avoiding these things. Like, I won't watch Wimbledon because I'll just get caught up in winning and losing. Or I, I won't pay attention to football or whatever. If you take that attitude, well, you can't do anything in life. Anything at all. Because there's no escape from the worldly wins. So this path of awareness is not a path of escaping from the world, it's a path of moving through the world with understanding. There's a verse in the Dhammapada where the Buddha says, never has it been, nor will it ever be, nor is it now the case that anybody is completely free from blame. Now, none of us like to be blamed and we all like to be praised. And yet the reality is, from Buddha's teaching, and I would suggest from our own experience also, you can't help but be blamed, even if you don't do anything. Even in the case of somebody who's thoroughly enlightened, you still can't be free from blame. You still get criticised. So where's the freedom? The freedom is this path of practice, the cultivation of awareness, of knowing our reactions when the winds blow. And instead of becoming our reactions, being aware, simply being aware. Now this goes against the conditioning that we have from a a worldly perspective. The collective agreement about competition is that you have to win. But if you contemplate these things at all, you realize that if you have to win, somebody else has to lose. And so there isn't, you can never have everybody winning. There's always going to be winners and losers. This is the world. This is life. What's wise, surely, is to be able to see this is the nature of the world and to abide as that seeing rather than becoming caught up in the world. So it's not judging the world, it's not, but it's also not becoming lost in it. It's not avoiding it. But if we commit ourselves to this cultivation of awareness, of being aware, then we have to be prepared to go against the world and also our worldly conditioning. And that takes a certain kind of effort. Hence the the need to take our practice seriously. The conditioning is to follow our reactions. If we see the if we see the limitation of following our reactions, well then our tendency is then to just go against our reactions and deny our reactions and try and not have these reactions, try and not have feelings. If somebody praises praises us and we start to feel good, we pretend we don't feel good. But that doesn't solve it. I can remember my my very first year as a monk in Thailand where I was having huge problems because I could hardly speak any of the language at all. And um, the Thais were quite good at pointing out my faults and I had plenty of them. I was, you know, really a clumsy, you know, character 
just off the hippie trail, basically. And just left my last commune and, you know, stumbled into this monastery full of, of um, you know, wise, virtuous beings and as an awkward, clumsy, white, skinny, scrawny, uh, unkempt Westerner, I was, you know, wasn't up to their standards and they used to let me know about it. And I really didn't like being criticised. I really didn't like being blamed or criticised. Although I knew that I had faults. And, and what made it worse was actually I couldn't understand the language, so I kept making the same faults over and over again, and they kept criticising me over and over again. And, and then I think actually also they probably weren't criticising me when I thought they were. I got so caught up in feeling paranoid about being criticised. And it became a major problem. This fear of being criticised, fear of being blamed. And even when I knew that I was wrong, I couldn't admit my fault. Because there was this big backlog of, of pain around the whole thing of being criticised. And I looked at it and I looked at it and I, I tried to be mindful of my fear of blame. Fear of criticism. And the middle way teaches being mindful and being aware, not getting caught up in your reactions. And I tried to do this. And I would feel this tension and stress about being criticised and blamed and, and before it had happened and then feeling hot and angry when it was happening and after it was happening. And it didn't seem to make any difference. However much I tried to be mindful of it, it didn't, didn't work. Until, I think it was triggered by a letter I received from, from somebody, some wise friend. I, I, I can't be sure where it came from, but somehow or other I was... I was um, encouraged to, instead of looking at my fear of being criticised, I suddenly started noticing how much I was wanting to be praised. And when I, not wanting in advance to, to be praised, and then when I was being praised, I got totally lost in my reaction to the pleasure of it. Totally enjoyed being praised. So, you know, I, could, I started to speak a few words of Thai, and the Thai monk would praise me, and I would just feel so good so pleased with myself, or I would talk about my meditation to, to the meditation teacher, Ajahn Tate, and, and he would praise me, and I would feel like I was the best monk in the monastery, and, and lose perspective on it. And suddenly what I became aware of, very helpfully, was that actually the degree to which I was feeding on wanting praise was equal to the degree to which I was afraid of being blamed. And so I was able to undo this little tangle. Instead of actually just looking on my fear of blame and fear of criticism, I could learn how to watch how I was feeding on praise. And when, when we stop feeding on wanting to be praised, then there is no fear of blame. When we stop feeding on uh, wanting pleasure, or when we get pleasure, when we get delightful feelings arise, if we're not feeding on those delightful feelings, getting lost in them, well then when painful feelings arise, we don't get lost in painful feelings. Or if we don't get lost in wanting pleasurable feelings, like wanting Tim Henman to win. Yeah, you can want Tim Henman to win, if that's you know, what you like, that's alright. You know, or you can want the English to beat the Brazilians, and you can feel the wanting, but 
there's getting lost in it and there's just simply wanting it. This is the difference between becoming the world and actually being aware. And the evidence, or the whether it's working or not, uh, shows by how much we still suffer from these things. If we can't help but get completely caught up in them, well then it shows that we're actually still grasping. And we can hold this contemplation and say, well, what is it I'm grasping at? You know, with, with pleasure and pain. You know, the, there is a, a real fear. I think we, I'm sure we all have a, a fear, an understandable fear or resistance to suffering, to pain. And we can try to be mindful of it, we can try to not get caught up in it. But if we also look at the other side, and look at how, much, how we relate to pleasure, whether we're getting caught up in that or not. If we're conscious and present for pleasure, then we can be conscious and present for pain. And so we don't have to get caught up in one and then get caught up in the other. We don't have to get blown around by these worldly winds. So if it's the case that we find ourselves getting caught up, well then instead of just getting caught up, then it's helpful to stop and say, all right, worldly winds, worldly dumbness, this is the world, this is the world. Pleasure and pain, pleasure and suffering is the world. And instead of judging ourselves and saying, oh, I shouldn't get caught up, we just stop and say, all right, caught up in the world, that's what that is, that's what that is. And not to rush to the other extreme or to pretend we're not having a reaction, but just to simply receive it. Like earlier on this evening during the meditation, uh, sitting in meditation, feeling quite comfortable, nice quiet room, nice weather, we don't have to have the heating on for a change, and agreeable day, and agreeable company, and agreeable evening gathering, and, and that's fine. Then I turn around to do the evening chanting, and there's a bunch of dead lilies in front of me. Dead lilies. I mean, who was it? who's in charge of this Dhamma Hall? Who's clean? It's only a week since I told them to keep the flowers clean, and definitely pleasure changed into pain very quickly. And uh, for just a few moments there, the mind started going on about, you know, I want to know who's supposed to, who's responsible for cleaning this place. Anyway, Sunday night, people coming for puja, whoever's responsible for this should have seen that this morning and cleaned those dead lilies away. And then, but helpful, thankfully, it didn't go on for too long, and I was able to remember the contemplation that I'm talking about, which is actually, yeah, a moment ago it was pleasure, and now it's pain. And this is this is the nature of the world: pleasure and pain comes and goes. Do we get caught up in it or not? That's the point. That's the point. Not trying to avoid it. Not trying to avoid these things. You know. Pleasure and pain. Trying to avoid pleasure because I might get caught up in it. Or trying to avoid praise. You know, somebody praises, oh, don't praise me, whatever you do. Because we're afraid of becoming puffed up and conceited. Not avoiding, but also not getting lost. Just feeling how it feels, being present in our experience, in the moment. Not pushing and pulling on the experience, still, as we are in our formal meditation, still receptive, knowing, allowing, and then little by little understanding emerges. A natural understanding, not I understand now, I feel safe now, no. 
our natural understanding so that when these things come our way we can be there for and say, all right, that's the world. Mm. Honour and insignificance. Mm. Sometimes people acknowledge us and recognise us and think we're wonderful and you know, give us due respect and you know, after all my years and all my practice, you know, I should be invited to this conference and that conference and then I, I do get invitations to this conference, that conference and BBC rings up and wants to do interviews and I feel very important and, and that feels nice to feel important and, and usually I say no to these things which makes me feel even more important. And then, <laughs> but then, <laughs> but then suddenly I don't get invited to the conference that I think I should be invited to. So, well, why did he get invited to that conference? And why not me? You know, you know BBC hasn't rung me up for ages. <laughs> Tina Turner hasn't caused me any trouble. Usually when Tina Turner does something, BBC rings up and wants to know, what's the Buddhist view on Tina Turner or Richard Gere? I heard the other day, Richard Gere, the gossip lately, apparently Richard Gere is coming to Harnham. Everybody apparently around, well, so I'm told there's gossiping that Richard Gere is coming here. Apparently he's a Buddhist and he's coming to Harnham. This is the gossip of the world. This is the way of the world. And we have a choice. There's nothing wrong with being recognised and acknowledged and being told you're wonderful. Um, that's always going to happen. There are always going to be some people who think we're absolutely wonderful. It doesn't matter how scurrilous we are. There's always going to be somebody who thinks we're wonderful. But there's always going to be somebody who thinks we're the pits or we're no good. That's the way of the world. It's always going to be that way. It's always been that way. And it is that way now. So whether it's winning or losing, praise or blame, pleasure or suffering, honour or insignificance, to identify these as the ways of the world, the wind, winds that the world blows, and, and to be more interested in our reactions when we get blown by these things. If we can receive into non-judgmental here and now awareness, be that awareness, then, returning to the image I started with, you know, our, our roots can deepen by these things. And if we get a feeling for this, if we get a feeling for how these winds blow, blowing, deepen our roots, then we can even take on you know, practices that um, are encouraged in the Buddhist way, you know, practices of renunciation or, or intensification, where we will actually uh, even choose to go for, for the things or to open to, up to the things that we, we normally wouldn't welcome. So, you know, painful feelings or being dismissed or um, losing or being criticised, the negative side of the eight worldly winds, the eight worldly dhammas, the things that we tend to avoid, when we start to feel for ourselves, not just hear philosophically the argument and think it's a good idea, but when we start to feel for ourselves the strengthening of awareness that comes by being really alert in the moment to the reality of our experience as we're blown around by the world, when we start to really feel this, well then these four negatives actually become something we can work with 
Now, it is the case that we could just hear the argument and uh, and say, well, that sounds interesting, and, and then grasp at the idea that pain is good for me, criticism is good for me, and, you know, throw ourselves down on the floor so somebody can walk over me. You know, there is that risk, and all religions... Um, point out the dangers of actually grasping this teaching in the wrong way. Mm-hmm. That's not what's being referred to. Yeah. In one of the chants we do every fortnight after the, the recitation of our rule, there's this reminder that says, these rules wrongly grasped are like grasping the kusa grass. Now, kusa grass is, I don't know if you have it in this country, in New Zealand it's called cutty grass. And if you, it's a sharp, tough grass. And if you grab it, actually, it can cut your hand. If you grab it in the right way, it doesn't hurt you. But if you grab it in the wrong way, this cutty grass cuts your hand. And so this is being referred to as an image in this chant we do every fortnight after reciting our rule together as a community. You know, this training wrongly grasped is like cutting, grasping the kusa grass. In other words, the way we relate to the training determines uh, our experience. We can be actually damaged by it. So this contemplation of, for instance, actually paying attention and opening up to pain, opening up to criticism, opening up to failure and so on, uh, has to be opened up to in a skillful, sensitive way, otherwise we can just become more hurt by it. So we're not opening up to these things so as to torture ourselves or give ourselves a bad time because we're so unworthy that we deserve it, not at all. But rather to recognize that if, as I was saying before, that if we're always seeking praise, then we're always going to be afraid of blame and criticism. And if we see that, if we really see that for ourselves, well then we can start to actually emphasize the criticism and, and um, you know, even invite it. I mean, I don't mean to go out and do things that, so that people are going to... You know, tell you off. I don't mean that. You know, I hasten to add, in case anybody in the community is having any ideas. Uh, no, but when when there is an opportunity in a relationship, a committed relationship, where always in committed relationships there's the risk of of causing offence to each other, and instead of actually strategizing ourselves in the relationship so that we we make it difficult for the other person to criticise us. We go the other way, and and we, we and, and there is in fact a part of our training in the monastic community where we're encouraged specifically, formally, ritually, and also in, in, informally, to give invitation to each other to offer criticism because we know it's what we don't want. So, in other words, we lean into that which we don't want because it frees us from being enslaved to that dilemma being enslaved to the world, avoid seeking pleasure and avoiding pain, seeking praise and avoiding blame, seeking success and avoiding failure. That's the struggle, that's the stress of a worldly existence. Now, the freedom that the Buddha was referring to, the middle way, so it is actually where we can remain secure, unshakable. The Pali word, nakampati, which means unshakable. Now this is not the unshakability of, of rigidity, of not feeling. You can be an unshakable lump of granite, you know, that doesn't feel anything. It's not like that. But the unshakability that the Buddha says comes from 
a right understanding or a clear seeing of the way things actually are. Seeing through the way things appear to be, seeing through that, it, you know, relatively speaking, it looks like it would be really good if Tim Henman won or, you know, or if the English beat the Brazilians. I mean, you know, you can get a feeling that that would be nice. But also seeing beyond that, actually, it doesn't really matter. It really doesn't matter. I mean, so what if you win? The next time you lose. But we want winning and we don't like losing. That's the way it is. But to really see that that's the way it is, not to get caught up in the way it appears. There's a story recorded from a period way back in um, ancient Chinese history, um, a time when China was very prosperous, and the, the story records that standing on the banks of the Yangtze River, the emperor was accompanied by a very well-known meditation master at the time, and who he'd probably invited in for some teachings, as emperors tended to do in those days. And um, it's recorded the emperor was looking at the river and seeing all these boats going by, barges going by, laden and and backwards and forwards, and and uh, he's feeling very pleased about the, the wealth. And he turns to the monk and and said, "Isn't it wonderful? You know, what do you think? Isn't it marvelous?" This, this great wealth, this prosperity, all this activity, all this profusion of development and that, that we're experiencing. And, and the, uh, the great the master reported as saying quietly and simply, he said, I see only two things. I don't see many. I see gain and I see loss. That's it. I see gain and I see loss. From the perspective of understanding, that's true. From the emperor's perspective, uh, probably gaining was more important than losing. From a worldly perspective, gaining is everything. From a reality perspective, we have to learn to lose. We have to learn to lose. We've got to learn to feel what it feels like to lose. Because if we don't know the feeling of loss consciously, then we're always going to be afraid of it. If we don't know accurately the sense of failure, if we don't really know that feeling of I've failed, we don't know what it feels like without judging it, without taking sides, without wallowing in it, without avoiding it, without indulging in it. Just knowing it, here and now, judgment-free awareness, freely feeling what it feels like to fail. Then we'll always be afraid of it. We'll always be going towards the other side of trying to succeed all the time. But talking about this, uh, I don't know what the emperor thought on that occasion, and whether he was impressed by the teachings he received, whether they were welcome or not. But sometimes people hear these teachings and think, oh, well, if you have that attitude, then you'll never try. You'll never have any enthusiasm for doing anything. That's not the case. And that's certainly not what's being encouraged. Rather, it's understanding that from one level, of course, we have to uh, live in the world. We do live in the world. 
and that success and failure is part of the world. And of course you try to succeed, of course we try to do our best. But behind that there's another level of understanding. And that's what the Buddha was referring to saying, if we have that deeper level of understanding, well then we're not going to get caught up in this level. So it's not a judgment of the worldly level, it's just saying that's not ultimate. In the Mahamangala Sutta, which, which you will have heard us recite many times, and there's a, towards the end of the Sutta, the second to last stanza, there's a couple of lines, says, Putasa loka dhammehi chittang yasang nakampati. Chittang yasang nakampati. Chitta's heart. That heart is unshakable. And so, puttasalokadamehi, even though we're blown around by the worldly winds, even though there are these worldly winds of praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and suffering, honour and insignificance, even despite these eight worldly dhammas, the heart is unshakable. Asokang virajang kiamang, griefless, dustless, secure, free. This is the ultimate blessing. Now, what it's talking about, this is the second to last stanza, the third to last stanza of the sutta. Is, is talking about arriving, you arrive at this understanding, this right understanding comes with a personal, a personal inquiry into and a recognition around the whole process of desire. The desire is the key, the core. That because we don't understand the nature of desire, because we don't understand it clearly and see it, it's like fire. You know, because we don't understand the nature of fire, we relate to it in an insane way and we get burnt. There's not a judgment of fire, it's not a judgment of desire, it's not saying something wrong with fire, it's not something wrong with desire. Yeah. This is part of existence. What's essential is that we, our relationship with desire is informed by understanding, by wisdom. It's not an ignorant relationship to desire. So the complexity of the world that the emperor was caught up in and that a lot of the rest of the world has been caught up in in the last few weeks about winning and losing, the complexity of the world is not ultimately complex. It's apparently complex and confusing and disturbing and we can get blown around by it and we can get upset by it and shaken by it. And gutted even, I've heard people get gutted by losing at Japan, was it? They were playing in Japan. Mm. There's no need to be gutted by losing. If we establish our practice in being aware, particularly being aware in this area of our relationship with desire, That when we don't understand desire, we always take sides, either for or against. It's good or it's bad. Relatively, we can say that. We could put a, a value judgment on desire. That's a good desire, that's a bad desire. We could say that. But again, if our relationship desire is not informed by right understanding, if we don't actually know the reality of desire, then even though we're saying it's good or it's bad, it's not going to help us, it's not going to make any difference ultimately. What the Buddha was encouraging us 
to do was in the whole teaching on the the, the four found the um, the four noble truths. You know, essence of all Buddha's teaching, of all Buddha's traditions, is that if we bring awareness to our experience of desire and see that we've got a choice, that from the perspective of awareness we don't have to follow desire. We don't have to avoid desire. We can be mindful of desire. We can feel it. We can feel. Just the same as we can approach a fire and how close we get to that fire is up to us. We can feel the heat and we can relate to it in a skillful way. Or we can avoid and pull back and get cold, or we can go too far in and we can get burnt. Well, from the practice perspective, we can likewise relate consciously to desire. From a practice perspective, we can feel desire, feel what it feels like when desire arises. If we get too close, we get caught up in it. And the mind goes off and it's goodness knows how long before we come back again and we remember ourselves. Yeah. Or we can judge desire as bad and as soon as it arises, just say, I shouldn't have it, and block it and stop it. Either judgment is not informing us regarding the nature of desire. So rather than following our conditioned reactions to desire, what, from a practice perspective, what's encouraged is with interest, recognizing we have a choice. We can actually also hold back our reaction and observe and feel. You know, in sitting meditation and you have the desire to move, we can actually feel the desire, actually wanting to move. And there's part within it, part of part within us that doesn't want to do that, just wants to follow it. There's a, just move, for goodness sake, just move. I don't want to bother with it. So what is that? Well, that's the conditioned momentum of the world. That's the conditioned world. That's worldliness. And that's, that, that is not an obligation, that's a choice. And yet to inhibit the reaction and to follow it takes a certain kind of effort. Now if we have a habit of, of repressing and judging, well then as soon as we inhibit our, our, our relationship with, with desire and we don't resist it, we can then fall into the other extreme of, of, of feeling good because we're resisting our desires. That's not it either. You know, that's, that leads on to what the Buddha talked about, excessive asceticism. You know, feeling like by giving ourselves a hard time that was something, there's something virtuous in it. And of course anybody who's read the life story of the Buddha knows that he did that for quite a long time, went through all the great asceticisms of the time and nearly killed himself in the process. No, that's not it. He's talking about the middle way. The middle way is being in that place in the middle of our experience where we feel desire and desire, when we feel it accurately, desire is just so. It's not good or bad. That's a superficial level, good or bad, right or wrong. At a deeper level, desire is just so. It's just movement, it's just activity, it's just the activity of existence. There's nothing right or wrong about it. To have, to approach, to even begin to approach that feeling of relationship to desire changes the way we, re- we relate to life. And also it changes the way we relate to these worldly dhammas. 
So in our contemplation of these worldly dhammas, these eight worldly dhammas, these eight worldly winds, when we do feel ourselves being blown around, whether it's you know the pleasure of meditation turning turning into the pain of disappointment or or irritation, or whether it's around the weather, today's been lovely, tomorrow it'll probably be miserable again and we can get disappointed, or whether it's not being acknowledged and recognized and appreciated as we think we should, or whether it's being praised and told how wonderful we are, whatever it is, if we can prepare ourselves with an awareness of these phenomena, these dynamics, so that when we are blown by them, we're not blown over by them. We develop a strength, a sensitivity to remaining with, in a non-judgmental way, remaining with our experience and seeing how that deepens our roots, deepens our commitment to the way. Thank you for your attention. Andamayangamavadagatasadukaramidamma <laughs>